as an industry made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. There's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Gary Witter, writer behind the likes of Telltale's The Walking Dead Season 1, Forspoken, and the beloved Star Wars Rogue One. So join us as we explore his journey. Of course, Dev Diary is funded by an amazing group of people at patreon.com slash devdiarypodcast. They help grow the show, make it bigger, make it more successful, and they've got early access to this episode. Consider checking it out yourself, and if you can't do that, perhaps consider throwing the show a five-star review or equivalent on your podcast service of choice. Thanks a lot, and enjoy the show. So today I'm joined by Gary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well. Um, we've just been discussing, obviously, synchronizing time zones and the like is always a it's always a fun challenge, but it's it's fantastic to have been able to make this one work. Yeah, even in the US, you know, we've got different time zones. There's a three-hour difference between the East Coast and the West Coast. But when you're talking about like US Australia, it's not just a different time, but in fact, it's, for us, it's a different day. Friday yeah. for me, Saturday for you. The future is amazing, Gary. It's wacky. You would not you would not believe it. I know, and, and, you know right, I, can see you on, I can see you on video right now on this Discord call, and it's like you're right around the corner. It's, it's sometimes I think we take this stuff for granted. Like you're, it would, it would take me what, like a day on an airplane to get to you, and yet here we are, and here we are, back and forth. It's it's, it's pretty amazing. incredible. But uh, this is Dev Diary series. You talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey has led to this current point in time. Now, Gary, you're work in multiple different forms of media is so vast and so diverse that it's going to be a really fascinating conversation. Of course, we've got Gundog as a, as a recent um, product of yours to, to discuss, and we'll, we'll obviously discuss that in great detail shortly as well. But as, as per the core of the show, it's video games, but you've worked in film, you've had a bit to do with Star Wars. There's a range of different really incredible things that you've been a part of. Before we get to any of that, though, I'd love to rewind to a point well before you were creating and focus purely on some consumption. Do you recall what some of the first games were that you ever played? Yeah, so I grew up in the UK uh, in the 80s. And so I was very much a product of the original um, 8-bit generation. It's interesting now that I live in America that we um, that Brits and and Americans have very different upbringings in terms of like what they were playing on 8-bit and 16-bit. You know, America yeah. was much more console centric you know americans of my age you know grew up on the on the super nes the nes master system genesis um in the uk we were much more computer kits right zx sinclair spectrum commodore 64 um and even even on the computer side there were differences right where where we were playing games on the commodore 64 americans more likely to be playing on an apple II. um and those and and they were everywhere but like there were certain systems were dominant in different places so i even though i'm a child of the 80s i didn't play a lot of nes stuff growing up like my my video game references from the 80s are all commodore 64 spectrum amiga games things like that and so uh it wasn't until i came to america that i started getting more into pc gaming um although i was editor-in-chief of pc gaming in the uk for a couple of years before i came over here and then you know now more on the on the console side i still play a lot of pc games um but i'm kind of um, I have a little bit, you know, I have the PlayStation, Xbox, Switch, um, all here. So I, now I'm just kind of, you know, platform agnostic. I'll, pl- I'll play good games wherever I can, wherever I can find them. It, it's certainly an interesting one because certainly over the years of 
doing this show and talking to people from the US, from the UK, from all, all corners, and obviously a lot of people in my own backyard, I've certainly come to realize that those from Australia who've kind of been, uh, as per your kind of description, there was the console space in, in North America. There was, uh, through the UK, it was very much around, around the PC scene and many different platforms within that you've discussed. And here it's this interesting kind of hybrid. You'll speak to some people that it doesn't seem to be necessarily a rhyme or reason. They're all kind of from maybe the same age bracket and yet they might err more on the console side. They might err more on the PC side and there doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason behind it. Um, it's just that, I think that kind of typical Australia thing where we're a little bit Americanized. We've obviously got our, our roots back over in, in, in the UK though as well. And it doesn't seem to necessarily. So it's kind of like a mix of the two. I, yeah. A little bit of everything. Yeah. Which is, which is cool in a lot of ways. Um, but you also never quite know what you're going to get when you chat to someone too, which is, which is awesome. The thing that I always preferred about the UK's, I mean, there were great games on the Spectrum and the Commodore 64, and there were great games on the on the NES and, and Sega as well. But what I liked about um, the UK scene was, you know, those were open systems rather than closed yep. systems. On you know, on NES and um, and Sega, you can only you just play the games, right? You put a console, put a cartridge in the box, and play, it, and that was it. That's all you could do was consume. But uh, if you had a Commodore 64 or a Spectrum or an Amstrad or an Amiga or an, or an Atari ST, whatever was around at that time, even one of the even one of the more obscure systems, if you were really excited about the games you were playing, you could you know grab a book of uh, of how to program, and, and you know, they all had keyboards, and you could you could start to program and make your own games. And in fact, a lot of the the best games that were um, that were around in the in the 80s were you know just hobbyists, people that you know what you know one man. Or one woman development teams that would just do it all themselves, you know. And and, and you could, I love, I love the fact that you could. Uh, many of the developers that are still around today, you will tell you that they kind of got uh, just just messing around with their Spectrum or their Commodore sixty four, you know, in their in their bedrooms, you know, not, not just playing games, but fiddling around with learning how to make them as well. Absolutely, and I guess that's probably if there was one kind of correlation there when it comes to locals, is that those who are more in the the programming scene these days, the programming side of development, tended to be on the PC side when they were younger as opposed to the console. Not one-to-one, but much tighter to that. Um, so for you, as as you grew older and you you experienced more games across more platforms, did you find yourself gravitating towards, I mean, we know these days, for example, you're obviously a part of the kind of funny X-Cast, and so there's a little bit of an allegiance there to the Team Xbox, but even prior to that, did you find yourself gravitating towards any games, genres, platforms, franchises at all? Um so coming out of like the 16-bit era when i came to the us and i was playing a lot of pc games and this would have been around since late 90s now so this would have been like the era of you know n64 into the into the gamecube sega saturn into the dreamcast um and then you know the 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 origins of the of the playstation and xbox in in late in the late 90s into into the um, early aughts and so i again i i was lucky enough to work in an office where they had everything and i played a little bit of everything and i had a playstation two at home i had an xbox at home i again i remain platform agnostic i do host um an xbox uh podcast but i don't consider myself in any way tribal or like allegiant to one platform or another i think i think the whole tribalism thing is very silly and i think absolutely you know, it kind of makes the discourse more more difficult you see it right now around starfield right because that's a platform exclusive on xbox there's a lot of tribalism all the playstation um uh, kids are not you know will, will find reasons to ding it and there are people on the other side who are so, like so married to their allegiance to xbox that they'll forgive some of the things about the game that need work right and it's like you yeah. can't just look at anything clear-eyed anymore so i i try i try to look at it 
you know, like I don't have any skin in the game in terms of one platform or another. I will say that if a game is on multi, let's say a game like Call of Duty or whatever that's available on, you know, multiple platforms and I can take my pick. Um, if it's on consoles, I will generally tend to gravitate towards the Xbox simply because that's the system that I have more friends on. I yep. prefer the, I just prefer the controller. I like offset sticks better than um, parallel oh. sticks that you have on the DualSense. Um, I just, you know, I'm just a little bit more um, tied into that ecosystem. I just, I just like the Xbox a little bit better than the PlayStation. But you know, I'm super excited about Spider-Man Two, which is a, you know, play. Like I, right now, I'm playing Starfield, which is an Xbox exclusive, and the next game I'm super excited about is Spider-Man Two, uh, or Two on the, as a PlayStation exclusive. So again, I will go wherever the games are. Yeah, it's it's about good games, not where they're where they're found necessarily. Um, yeah, and I, think, and, I, and I think that the people that are lucky enough to, you know, because I, I, I'm very privileged, I, I make good money and, I'm, I, and I have access to um, all of these systems. And so I, I don't have to feel like I'm allegiant to one platform or another. But I, I kind of get where it comes from. You know, we're tribal creatures by nature. It's where sports rivalry comes from. And yep. it goes all the way back to, you know, when we were hitting each other with rocks as cavemen, right? My tribe is stronger than your tribe. Um, and that's kind of like hardwired into our brains. And I think what happens is people that, you know, make a decision and for whatever reason invest in one system or another let's say okay i bought a playstation instead of an xbox or vice versa they really want to feel justified in that purchase and they want to really want to feel like they made the right purchase and they're on the right team and they and and, and so they and, and so they develop these kind of tribal affiliations with one platform over another and i think it's all very silly i mean you know, there's very little when, when people ask me like should i get a playstation or an xbox it's not an easy question to answer i usually ask well like what games do you want to play what's what's important to you because there isn't one yep. clear winner right there's very, virtually nothing between them technically right if you watch a digital foundry video they'll generally tell you oh the playstation 5 like or it's xbox series x may may have an edge here it's like barely discernible to the naked eye right it's they're practically the same system from a hardware standpoint and that's been the case all through like xbox 360 and playstation 3 basically basically the same system it comes down to a handful of exclusives and services and like game pass is a really compelling reason to have an xbox over a playstation again maybe you prefer the playstation controller so there's not there's not one right answer and so i I do think again the starfield discourse right now i just find really disappointing where everyone's kind of like gone to their corners and and basically decided whether they like the game or not based on their tribal affiliation before they've even looked at the game right there was a lot of like oh starfield sucks or starfield's going to be great but just before they'd even seen the game purely based on like what team they think they're on yeah it's 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 a pretty disappointing kind of conduct that we see but at the same time you've you've highlighted correctly where where how primitive this this thing is and not necessarily in the derogatory way but just it's it's seen everywhere as you said through sport going it's, all it's, the way it's back part, it's part of human nature right again i my my um i remember the onion used to have a great t-shirt it was like my local sports team is better than your local sports team it's like it's, you realize just how silly it is but we want to feel part of a tribe we want to feel part of a, a community um and that we've got common interests and and you know this is where it's where gang culture comes from it's where sports you know uh, tribe uh, uh, culture is where the console wars come from it's all very silly but it is it's deeply wired into our brains from the caveman days and there's nothing we can do about it yeah and so for you as as you got this really rounded experience and it got to experience games across all sorts of platforms when it came time to actually enter the industry and obviously through games journalism ace magazine for you were there any important games or moments along the way that really steered you down that path because obviously there's there's the lens that so many of us look through which is purely consumerist and we we enjoy our games regardless of the platform maybe across all platforms but to actually take the step and go further into the industry were there any particular experiences you had along the way that guided you there um i mean if you're talking about influential games like games that kind of like really 
you know, the ones I remember, even from like yeah. 40 years ago, um, I think probably one of the reasons why I'm enjoying Starfield so much right now is that to me just feels like the spiritual successor to Elite, which yeah. is one of my all time favorite games from the 19, yeah, the original kind of space trading game that said, oh, we have a thousand planets and you know, a lot of the same claims were being made even in the even in the eight bit days. But, you know, loading up your ship with contraband, you know, smuggling to different planets and, you know, I can buy it here and sell it for more over there, making money, upgrading your ship, you know, seeing your wanted level go up, like all of that stuff. You know, we're still, you know, it's, it's funny. I talk about this a lot. You know, it's like we we've been just watching the numbers go up for decades. And even though games become technically more still fundamentally the same, you know, um, gameplay concepts, you know, kill these things, come back, I'll give you a better pair of trousers and, you know, you'll, you'll have more armor. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're just getting better at executing those concepts. Gameplay and, and fundamental gameplay mechanics have gotten more sophisticated. You know, you, th you think of like, you know, big kind of real-time strategy games and things like that and like really, really uh, intense first-person shooters. We didn't have anything like that back then. It was basically just platformers and really basic racing games and, and shoot-em-ups and things like that. So gaming has evolved in all kinds of ways, but it's it's remained true to its roots and elite is one of those games that i look back on as like you know really kind of fundamental to the to the history of video games it was so influential against starfield and star citizen wing commander you know all of those you know all of those games owe some kind of debt to elite back in the day so that was a big one for me um and a game that very very few, few people i think have heard of outside the uk but there's a game called paradroid that i that i really really liked uh was really important to me as a as a as a kid it was like kind of the first Fan fiction I ever wrote was like fan fiction Paradroid as I was Very cool. tooling around with learning to be a learning to be a writer, um, and I'm I'm sure there are many more if I had more time um, to think about it. Like the first, like I remember Defender of the Crown, like the well, the first Amiga game I ever played. Kind of that that felt like the first. It's rare now I think when you go from like a PlayStation Four to a PlayStation Five or an Xbox One to an Xbox Series X, you can see the games look better, but they don't look like generationally better, right? So oh my Diminish god, this is like right and and but i remember when we went from 8-bit to 16-bit right so which for me was the commodore 64 to the amiga or the nes to the super nes or the Je or the or the master system to the genesis like those were big jumps right? so, oh my that, that game like even from an immediate glance like that's this is next level right more colors um things moving faster better you know meatier sound just everything was more everything just felt like yeah truly next generation i, I definitely i don't know what the cause of it is 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 to some extent diminishing returns but it does feel now like the generational leaps don't feel quite as generational yeah. as they used to back in the day the last time i remember looking at a new game system and going oh my god that, that's next level was the dreamcast that was yeah. and that was almost 25 years ago it's been a long time now um yeah it's it, it's quite crazy the i guess the lack of and i don't mean in a disrespectful way but yeah the lack of jumps that we're seeing in in the consoles these places we see we see some gimmicks come through from time to time and obviously nintendo um tries to bring something new to the table whether it's through the switch when we think about the wii with the motion controls and how they embedded that in but certainly on that kind of raw hardware side we are seeing less and less these days yeah um, and you know we're, we're still experimenting i think vr is i think vr will eventually be something i don't think it's anything yet it's actually developing much more slowly than i than i thought it would um but yeah we've I think gotten to a point where like we're not really gimmick driven anymore i don't yeah. don't get me wrong i love nintendo god bless them but we would we would be a far poorer industry um without, without them. them you know i think i think sony and and microsoft Kind of battle it out but again they're very very similar systems right it's a handful of exclusives but they mostly play the game same games and and do it in the same way whereas at least nintendo is like well, well let's try something different like, let's do something wacky let's do motion controls let's do a, a system that can be a handheld and dock into your tv at the same time and yeah. um yeah they're, they're the they're the only people out there and in terms of gameplay as well gameplay concepts they're the only people out there i think that are consistently consistently just doing something different on a fundamental level 
Yeah, and we and we see it all the time, and there's some great examples uh, through the software that they create that that really show that they're trying to reinvent things as often as they possibly can. So, was the the penchant for writing was that always there as well on the side? So you're consuming games, having a great time, lots of different media as well, but but writing itself, I guess, where did that start for you? Yeah, around about the same time that I was playing games when I was like 12, 13, 14 years old, and I was in and I was still in school and. Um, I'm very right brain, which is um, uh, means I'm more, more creative, like more creatively brained than than logically. I, I can't solve puzzles. I can't. I'm terrible at chess. I can't do like basic arithmetic. I need to get the calculator out. I'm not very good at like logical concepts or numeracy or things like that. But I'm very good at like abstract concepts. You know, imagination, creative writing, things like that. It's just the way that I, way that I've always been wired. And so the only um, class that I was ever any really interested in at school was was um, English. I, I, yeah. I love to read and write and I would write short stories and things like that. And because I was playing a lot of video games at the time, you'll of course remember back in the day, video games in the 8-bit era didn't have much in the way of story, right? It was, yeah, if, it was if, any, far lighter. if anything at all. There might be the bare bones of something. And so what I would do is kind of fill in the blanks kind of in my own head can and I would like come up with like more story than the game like giving what the game was was presenting to me like as a starting point i would kind of flesh a story out in my head and yeah i would start writing little fan fictions and things like that i used to play a lot of infocom games because i used to love the fact that those games actually were story driven right and they were beautifully written um you know they were they were, they were text adventure games but what infocom did and i think justifiably so they called their games interactive fiction because they were actually really written in a in a you know it was, it was like reading a novel that you could play and, and, I, and I loved that and they, they were doing story in games long before anyone else was um, and so, yeah, that was, that was kind of where it began. It was my love for video games and, and my, my interest in writing kind of married because my, my very earliest creative writing was basically video game fan fiction. Yeah, right. Uh, I guess, what do you recall from some of those early fan fiction works? Um, so I, do, I, remember, I, I remember writing fan fiction based on some of the Infocom games that I had played. I remember, um, again, the very first movie script I ever wrote, and I still have like this dog-eared copy of it, and I go, go back and look at it in time time and cringe. Like when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17 years old, I wrote, yeah. I wrote a screenplay uh, based on the video game Paradroid, which is about a big spaceship yeah. where all the robots go haywire. And um, that was my first experiment with actually kind of writing a, a screenplay. Um, and then that, weirdly, that has actually now become like part of what I actually do for a living because I've worked on, you know, Video, film and television adaptations of video games. I've helped develop the narrative for video games, and so it's the, the I was I guess I was kind of like born at the right time because right as I was kind of getting serious about my career as a writer, and I kind of done, done with my full time career in video games. I'd left PC Gamer and was starting to be a screenwriter. That was roughly around the time that video games were evolving to the point where people were starting to wake up to the potential of storytelling in video games. You can have good storytelling. I remember when I used to edit. PC gamer back in the day, we would say things in reviews all the time, like, "Ah, eh, the story's not very good, but what do you expect? It's a video game. You can't say that anymore, right? No, it's no, there's no all. excuse anymore because games have shown, right? Whether it's The Walking Dead or The Last of Us uh, or whatever it may be, uh, Journey, you know, story indie games that tell stories in really interesting ways. Um, it, we've we've seen time and time again that video games can not only tell really good stories, but they can sometimes do it in better and more interesting ways than uh, film and television can because the user, the the, the, the engagement. The idea that the agency, the idea that the player can be the, the protagonist, can can affect the course of the story and feel invested in the story, like you've really got skin in the game in the way that you don't when you're just a passive observer watching film and television. Like the potential there, I think we're still just scratching the surface. I think we're going to do amazing things in interactive storytelling as we understand it better. I think we're still kind of in the silent movie era of figuring out how to kind of tell stories in video games. 
Um, but the timing for me was was really fortuitous because um, as I was starting in screenwriting, I still I also had behind me this whole career in video games. So as people were starting to want to put story in their video games or develop their video games into film and television, they I, they looked to me as someone who was kind of um, by like kind of weirdly bilingual in that I understood yeah. the language and, and video games, and I also understood storytelling. And I was you know, I did a lot of jobs where I was able to kind of marry those two skill sets. No, that's that's really really awesome. And of course, there is, and we've touched on a few times at various stages here the the actual games journalism part from from Ace in the beginning to the one about uh, the one for Amiga. There's PC gamer both in the UK and the US. And so at that period where you obviously had the the slant more towards creative writing, but this is obviously more reporting based and criticism and those sort of things uh what was it like for you during that phase where it wasn't like it was writing it was something obviously you were very very skilled at but it wasn't a hundred percent i guess the the determined path that you were chasing what was it like through that period yeah i mean when i was a kid i like, like i said i love video games and i love movies and i told myself oh it wouldn't it be amazing if i could turn just one of these hobbies into a profession and make it my career and i would have been happy with either one as it turned out games was what i what i was able to get into first i started as a games reviewer on Commodore user and it eventually um, helped launch PC Gamer here in the UK, which brought me to the US when uh, they launched the US edition. I was editor in chief of that during the late 90s. And during that time, I largely kind of set any other kind of writing ambitions aside. So I remember thinking, oh, well, this is the one that I got, right? I said games or movies and it's games. So I'm happy to do this. And I loved writing game reviews. I love being in the games industry. Again, during, you know, PC gaming in the 90s was really kind of a golden age. So many great yeah. games. You know, Blizzard, you know, at the height of their powers, Westwood Studios. Um, you know, I, I remember, you know, playing Command and Conquer, Red Alert and Starcraft, you know, all day long, Quake, just, just, just so many great games. And I think PC gamers today still look back at the, like in the late nineties as, as kind of, you know, halcyon days for PC gaming back when games came in those like oddly shaped giant boxes and things oh, like yeah. that. PC gaming was, it was fun. It was, it was a really, really fun time to, to, to edit a PC games magazine. And, and I still would kind of noodle around a little bit with like screenwriting and storytelling and stuff in my spare time, but I never took it seriously. And it wasn't until I actually kind of my hand was forced. I think I would have been quite happy to stay at PC Gamer forever. But uh, around the turn of the century, there was a big dot-com crash that you may remember. And a lot of companies lost their shirts and the company that employed me lost a lot of money and was forced to lay off a lot of people. And I got laid off and I was like, oh, wow, I've like been kicked off the train. I don't, what am I going to do? I, I could easily get back into games because I had a very good video game resume at that point. I'd been, been in games for like 12 years and had edited the biggest games magazine in the world at that point. Uh, so I could have gone, I presumably could have gone to work for like IGN or one of the emerging, emerging websites or one of those things. But I thought, no, let's try something different. Like I've got enough money to kind of live very frugally for about a year. So let's live off my savings and see if we can do the other thing. And I wrote, started writing screenplays and that was, that was kind of beginning of, of career number two. Yeah, and I guess leaning into that, we've got obviously some titles that uh, many people will know you for from the likes of The Book of Eli, After Earth, and even, I guess, in more recent um, stages, things like Star Wars Rogue One as well. So when we start focusing on, on that particular aspect of your life and, and the circumstance that you've just touched on that led up to that, how did those first opportunities finally start to emerge for you? Because I think, and it would be the same for a lot of creative media, actually you know, doing it uh, yourself, but then getting the opportunity to get exposed, getting that opportunity where someone sees your work and latches onto it can be really, really hard. So how did, um, how did things actually work out for you? I mean, it's, it's really hard. And so much of my career is predicated on luck. And I was often, often found myself in the right, right place at the right time. 
Um, but I spent, so originally I spent like a couple of years just like trying to learn how to write screenplays. I'm very autodidactic. I learned by doing, I would, I wrote a lot of terrible screenplays, but I would learn from each one and make the next one slightly less terrible. Uh, and I was also kind of jobbing around doing some consultancy work in the video game industry. I was helping, as I said, develop, so I worked, you know, in the early days of Gears of War and things like that. And on some Apogee titles, Duke Nukem Forever, Prey, uh, and a bunch of others, just kind of doing like anything from like straight up writing to story consultancy. And that would that would pay the bills and allow me to keep pursuing the screenwriting thing. And eventually I wrote um, a script that I thought was good enough to show somebody. And I got it in front of a, a talent manager in Hollywood who liked it and um, is still my manager today. I've been been with them for, for more than 20 years. And that was that was the beginning of like once I'd written a script that went out to Hollywood and people liked it and started to know who I was. That was the beginning of my my screenwriting uh, career proper but it didn't really take off until i wrote the book of eli and that got made into a movie in 2010 and that was that was really what um that was the movie that kind of gave me the career that i have today and i mean how do you reflect on the response to that and i guess everything that stemmed from that response too um because i'm sure it's a big shift at this point yeah um it's it's i mean don't get me wrong, it's, it's weird like sometimes my career in games feels like a whole other life but i'm still very as you know very involved in games i still you know i hang out with the kind of funny guys all the time i host the or co-host the x cast um every week i still stream games on twitch i still you know i'm very vocal about video games on social media i still play all the games um when i've got i've got two kids so i play games as much as time allows but you know yeah. i still am a very avid you know gamer and i'm very much in touch with what's going on in the video game world um but my day job now is is film television books comics uh and occasionally i, I still do work on on video games but, but, but rarely these days um i don't know I, I don't know if i've done a whole lot of reflection I, I i again i consider myself extraordinarily lucky i said you know like four years ago I was like, oh, if i could just have one of these careers it would be great and i it turns out i had both right? i had a very good career in games and now i've got i think a, pr a pretty decent career in in film and television and they and they sometimes you know they do sometimes still cross over and it's and it's great that i get to you know the the, the only two things in my life that i've ever been interested in or good at and so it's a, a get to do both of them professionally yeah it's 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 a nice position to be in really and and to have both of those i guess you being engaged in both of those spheres at any given moment is i'm sure really creative creatively stimulating at the same time because it is a different headspace to be in in terms of you know how you might write for a video game and contribute to a video game considering the gameplay aspect versus what you might uh have, you know the way you might have to write for film or television or or books or comics or you know any other form of media as well um yeah and i and i, and I genuinely think that my that my continued interest just in just as a gamer just as someone who plays video games continues to be an asset to me professionally i honestly think that if you are a storyteller if you're a screenwriter um, or in, in any way engaged in like the storytelling business um, and you're not paying attention to what's going on in the world of video games, you're missing something, right? Because some of the most interesting storytelling these days is happening in video games. It was interesting to see how many people were amazed by the Last of Us TV shows. Oh, this is amazing. This came from a video game. It's like, yeah, video game stories are actually, are actually 10 years ago. good now, <laughs> right? And, and it's kind of a wake-up call to a lot of people. And yeah, hopefully, I mean, we're obviously seeing a bit of a boom when it comes to video game adaptations once again and, and high quality ones too. Um, it'll be fascinating to see what that does for those who've been really dismissive of video games over the years and how, how do they I, potentially I mean, I, come I, on board. I, you know, I was, running, I was running, I worked on the Warcraft movie. I've worked on a bunch of Mirror's Edge, a bunch of things that never got made over the years. Um, and there used to be this talk about, oh, the curse of the video game movie, right? Because it's never been I a recall. good one. Um, and it's true that up until recently, I think there have been some decent ones, but nothing ever really great. I put, you know, I, 
when 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 somebody said uh many people said oh last of us is the first really good video game adaptation first of all i mean they're absolutely right it's a great video game adaptation i, I disagree with the idea that it's the first because i actually thought yeah. the two sonic the hedgehog movies were terrific sonic was they, great they, sonic was brilliant was i mean you know they they found a way to do it they basically just said let's make et but with sonic the hedgehog and it, and it worked and it was funny <laughs> and charming and people were really surprised by that but i like to think that between the sonic movies and the last of us and you know some of the other stuff that's in the pipe right now um i think that we're moving past that and i think we're getting past some of the prejudice and snobbishness that, that kind of mainstream like non-video game people have um i think the last of us probably more than anything else has, has done a lot to kind of take a take a take the stink off the idea of, oh it's based on a video game well it can't yeah. be very good well look at the last of us they can be very good and it's not and it's not just the fact that they did a great job with the adaptation it's because they had great source material to begin with and i think that a lot of the bad video game movies that we've seen over the years stemmed from just the initial decision being wrong like oh let's turn this into a movie because it's not a bit like the super mario brothers movie wasn't very good and a bunch of others where it was just based on like how big a property it was not yeah. is there an interesting story here to tell so when you can get both where something like the last of us was a big hit game but i think more importantly there's a great story there um then then you're onto something and i think i think the companies the studios that are in the business now of like identifying well what's the next game what's the next thing that we want to turn into a movie um are wiser about that now and also have better stuff to choose from because again back you know, back in the day 20 years ago video game stories just weren't very good now you know your your cup runneth over right not just the last of us but so many games out there have such great stories and such richly conceived characters and story worlds and, and world building that um there's just there's just better subject matter to choose from now than there used to be yeah of course now obviously video games it's still and you touched on it before it's still we're kind of in that silent film era and things are still growing and building and there's a lot a lot still to come even in terms of the the people and the individuals that get, I mean, we we obviously see the likes of Kojima get elevated in in, in Miyamoto, and there's there's several you know examples. Todd Howard, uh, obviously with the likes of Starfield too. That yeah, really Neil Druckmann. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. so many there's so many you know great kind of leading lights in that in that space. But uh, of course, with with that film and television side as well, that's that's put you in the same orbit as the likes of Denzel Washington, Gary Gary Oldman, M Night Shyamalan. You get to work on uh, IP like Star Wars. So considering all of your background at that point and consumption of various different forms of media, and and having obviously seen these people, these IPs in other capacities over the years, what was it like when you suddenly found yourself working with people like that? Or IP I mean, this, I mean, I mean, it doesn't matter where you come from. Anytime you find yourself sitting in a room with, you know, Denzel Washington, there's a there's a certain amount of like trying to kind of get your bearings and and figuring <laughs> out how you got here. Um, that is something that just you know, and I I don't think I don't think twice about it now. Like I don't think there's maybe a couple of people, but I don't get like, I way past like being starstruck by anyone yeah. or feeling like I'm out of my depth because you know I've been doing this now for 20 years and I feel like I've I've earned the right to you know be in the room with anybody um but i i still do pinch myself because it's crazy right that i get to do this for a living i grew up loving star wars and now i you know i helped write a star wars movie and that is you know bigger than any anything i could have imagined you know when i was when i was dreaming about what i might be doing when i was 10 12 years old so i don't know it's like i've been doing it long enough now that i don't really think about the kind of the broader context of it how weird it is and like any job like even when even working with star wars or whatever how glamorous it may seem from the outside there's plenty of days when I don't want to get out of bed. That, you know, it's, oh, I don't want to work on that today, or like I wish I, I, wish, I could, wish I could get. Yeah, and, and anything people say like find, you know, find what you love, and you'll and you'll never work a day in your life. I don't necessarily believe in that. Like it's still work. It's still really hard work. I've had good days and bad days. 
I've thrown my phone across the room in frustration. I've thought about quitting, but I still, when I, when I take stock and, and step back, I, I, I always remind myself, you're doing what you dreamed of doing when you were 10 years old. So, all, and then makes all my complaints feel kind of slightly, it just contextualizes everything. Like it's still pretty great. Yeah. It's, it's quite incredible. And so there's, we've, we've touched on video games and we'll, we'll wade more into that further, but then of course there's, and we've spoken about film and writing for that space too. And then there's of course a lot of other text-based stuff in the form of the likes of Abomination or uh, you've done adaptations of Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, there's Oliver, the Joker, kill, kill the Batman and what you contributed there, which was, uh, I my mum asked me to say, it was extraordinary what you put together with that. that she absolutely adored what you I'm glad. I'm glad she that. liked that, yeah. yeah. And DC liked it enough that they let, they let me do a whole Batman book. I did Batman Fortress last year, which was like a whole um, eight-part original Batman series that we pitched to DC and they let us do. And yeah, I, like I said, part of the fun is being able to kind of play with the toys that you grew up with, right? I, I, I say this all the time at, at, at conventions and stuff. Like, I still do what I was doing. Like, when I was a kid, right, I would I would bash my Star Wars figures or my Batman, you know, figures together yeah. and, and make them... Um, Create a story around uh, Yeah, I'd make them... I would come up with, with stories. I still do that now, except they pay me to do it, and the action figures are, like, much more expensive, right? They cost millions of dollars. But, <laughs> it's, but, it's, but it's still the same thing. When I'm in a room breaking story... I'm still doing this. I'm still bashing the 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 uh, action figures together. It's the same. It's the same thing. It all comes back to the same um, kind of. Uh, we're talking about tribalism being kind of a deep human urge. I think storytelling is also a deep human urge. You know, you go back to like sitting around the campfire. Like we just want to. We want to tell stories and we want to escape. And it's again, it's kind of a fundamental human need. Yeah, and I think yeah, that act of sharing with others um, is huge. It underpins all of it, and uh, you've obviously had the luxury of being able to share through multiple different forms of media. And so, as we as we start to launch into a bit of a conversation here about Gun Dog in particular, um, what is it like as you are jumping from different forms of writing for different forms of media, and I guess getting yourself in the right space to do so, and I guess how's that informed what you've done these days with? Gundog, which is you know, there's there's the audiobook component of it, and then how it's translated across um, more recently. What is it like trying yeah, to jump it, from it, yeah, into, into an actual book that you can pick up and read? Which yeah. is you know, it's a thrill to have a physical object still in in in, in an age where physical media is kind of largely going away. Um, some of it, so you know, I still consider myself a film and television writer by you know, that's still kind of my first language. That's the one yeah. I'm most fluent in. Um, but I branched out into comic books and um, and and novels and audio and and other media, partly out of like a creative urge to try other things, but also partly out of necessity. And I'm a I'm a create like a commercial necessity. I'm a science fiction writer by you know that's that's my genre. I've written outside of it, but that's what I mostly like to do. Um, the problem that I have is like big original science fiction ideas don't have much. There's no there's no, there's no market for that in in, yeah. in Hollywood, right? And no market at all right now because we're all on strike but you know even when we come back it's it's you know it's always been a challenge for me because the big original science fiction ideas that i want to tell are very expensive but hollywood has no interest in them right because everything now has to be ip 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 and that's why every no other commodities. movie is harry potter or lord of the rings or star wars or marvel or fast and the furious or whatever hell hot wheels the movie or whatever it is they're working on next or some big adaptation sequel reboot um, it's a very risk averse business and Hollywood generally won't spend a lot of money on making a movie unless there's a lot of evidence that people will show up. And the easiest way to show that is, well, a million people bought the book or a million people played the video game, yes. uh, you know, or it's a, you know, it's a remake of a TV series that was very popular back in the day. There's, there's, we know there's an audience there or there's like, you know, a handful of filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, you know, JJ Spielberg, you know, that they become the marquee attraction, right? The next film from Spielberg, of course you're going to go, right? Yeah. Their Spielberg. name drives it. 
and they and they can get original movies made but like there's only a handful of people in the world that could have made inception right big expensive you know uh, science fiction original film like that um because hollywood just doesn't like risk and so something like gundog which 10 years ago i would here's the thing 10 years ago i would have written gundog as a spec screenplay um it would have been sent out to the readers in hollywood 20 people would have read it they would have said it's too expensive there's no audience for it and that would have been the end of it and i would have spent six months of my life you know, writing something that for 20 people to read and say no to and that can be heartbreaking and so i just started thinking about look, i want to tell original stories but i kind of picked the hardest business to do it in so why not try you know other media like maybe i could write this as a book like maybe it'd be just as satisfying to tell this story that i originally conceived as a movie as a comic book and that's where oliver came from oliver was actually the first screenplay that i broke in with like more than 20 years ago but no one was going to make it as a movie because it's this weird post-apocalyptic retelling of oliver twist so i thought well maybe i could do it as a comic book and i did it as a comic book and that did get made because it's much you know cheaper and easier yeah. and you know i think the comic book industry is generally more open to original too. ideas yeah absolutely and so we got to make that as a comic and it and i realized oh i was just as satisfied to find an audience for that story through the medium of comics as i was you know if it had it been a, a film or a television show and so increasingly now what i do is I, I still pay the bills by you know i'm happy love of course working on uh star wars and other things that i've worked on you know the walking dead and the things that you've heard of where other people's sandboxes but i've been invited to play in them that can be really satisfying but i still get the most satisfaction from telling original stories and i've just decided now the way to do that is not to try and go go in through the front door or the hollywood gatekeepers will just say no because original things scare them a little bit and uh, you know find a way to surface that story in another way so gundog i originally i eventually wrote that as a novel which we also adapted into an audiobook um and that's now out there right the audiobook's been out for a while the actual physical book is now out as well and again i see people on social media like holding up their copy go oh i'm excited to read this new book and that's so satisfying to me the story found an audience and the medium is is a secondary um thing what's funny about it is and this isn't part of my calculation but what's weird about it is there is also a, a kind of a commercial aspect to that in that no one would have made gundog as a movie but if the if the podcast is a hit which it was and if the book sells a lot of copies which you know hopefully it will then suddenly hollywood will, oh well could we make a Comes movie a viable out of option yeah. yeah because now there is ip right now it's not an original anymore it's like it's 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 it's, it's you know it's 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 a pre-existing thing where i've been able to demonstrate hey look the people will show up for this kind of story so um you know if if that happens if that were to happen then great that's kind of the cherry on top but even if it doesn't again i've already as far as I'm concerned with something like Gundog, I've already crossed the finish line. It's an audio book you can go find and listen to on podcast services for free. It's a book that you can go to bookstores or order online, and it's a real thing that you can go. Um, it's actually the most exciting time for me as a writer because I've been working on this for years, but now it's out there in the world. People are reading it, and the reactions, I'm getting the first reviews, reactions started to come back in. It's a scary time because, oh, no, what if people hate it? But people seem to be liking it so far, and it's so, again, it's the most satisfying thing to see people respond in a positive way to the things you know that you've created and put out there into the world and i'm sure it is really exciting you've obviously touched on you know people potentially in the orbit too that are you know getting their hands on tactile copies i've seen you sharing a few people on on social media who've gotten their hands on it i see the likes of uh, reggie fils for example recently got his hands on it. you see phil spencer yeah phil spencer and- from xbox was really kind to, I, I mean i it, it, this is the thing right so when i work on something like star wars um, I have the luxury of knowing that there's that it's Star Wars and everyone knows what it is and they're going to spend hundreds of million dollars, millions of dollars on marketing and any interviews or press or whatever that I'm going to do, it's all going to be set up for me. There's, there's a whole division that does that. When I do something like this book, which, which has been put through a small indie publisher, there's no marketing budget. There's no, you know, multimedia, you know, marketing campaign. It's just Goodwill. me doing, yeah, doing what I can to kind of bang the drum. And again, I'm fortunate to 
know a lot of people in the business, both in games and films, um, who are friends of mine that um, you know want to support me, and I'm so grateful for that. And so, like, I didn't like, for example, when like when Phil Spencer tweeted, he's got like more than a million followers on on uh, on social media, and is obviously is you know someone that people you know, when he tweets something they pay attention. I didn't expect anything. I just sent him the book. Like, I just they they I had a list of friends I wanted to send the book to because I was proud of it. And then Phil goes and 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 tweets about it and. I literally saw like after I saw the sales of the book go up yeah, so right. it's it's I very I, I think I tweeted something about this earlier this week that it's the most gratifying thing for me this week getting the book out into the world has not has, has actually been just like seeing all the people that I admire and friends of mine kind of stepping up to support it and um and, and help spread the word so it's been it's been really really gratifying very it's good for the soul no, it's it's fantastic, and um, I guess we, we've touched on you know the potential like the back door you know through to Hollywood when it comes to ideas these days. So if if someone were to approach you uh, when it comes to you know an Oliver or a Gun Dog or something like that today, what, what what do you think that conversation looks like given the success you've already had? What, what's your feeling I mean, in terms of where this thing can go? It's tricky because I'm so I'm so protective of my my babies. They're, you know the original ones are, are like my are my children. Eli was you know that was my baby, and I consider myself really really lucky that it got made in a way that was really faithful to the source material because that's not always the case. Um, yeah, I mean I'll always have a conversation with someone. One of the things that I like about doing originals like Oliver or like Gundog or like Abomination, my first book, is that I own and control all of it, right? No one can fire me. No one can change my words. I, I'm never going to get replaced by another writer the way, you know, writers do in the t- all the time in Hollywood. Yeah. I, have, I have a reasonable expectation that the story, like the book, like Gundog is sitting here in front of me, a copy of the book. That's the story I wanted to tell. Like there's, there were no creative notes. There's no studio interference or whatever. Um, I'll give you another example. When I did Batman Fortress for DC last year, it was a big, you know, sprawling um, you know, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, you know, Justice League, Alien Invasion, like this big, big comic book. had And DC just left me alone to do it. I got almost no notes from them. They were just like, hey, another good issue. Thanks a lot. Like, maybe <laughs> tweak this one line of dialogue. But, like, we're all good. Like, there was no, like, you know, no you know, development process at all. They liked the original story and they liked the scripts that I turned in and it, got, and it happened very quickly. I guarantee you, had that been the exact same story, that was written as like a DC movie for Warner Brothers, it would still be in like development right now. And I'll be on like the 30th rewrite because, you know, they, the things get stuck in development forever. And again, it's not, you know, whatever it costs to make a comic book versus, you know, 100, 200, 300 million now these days to make a movie before you even start marketing it. Um, the numbers are so crazy now that you understand kind of a little bit kind of where the risk aversion comes from. You know, like movie, you know, when a big Star Wars movie comes out or whatever, it, it, whether it performs or fails, that can literally move the stock price of the parent company, right? Yeah, and it's, so it's it becomes huge. this, it becomes this Titanic thing. Um, and so I loved, I, I loved being able to do things in a smaller way where I don't have to ask anyone's money or permission to do anything. So I retain full creative control. It's, but then there is kind of a Faustian bargain. Let's say that a big studio comes, oh, we want to make Gundog the movie. So, oh, that's great. But like, as soon as I sign it over to them, I, I, I surrender control of it, right? At, at, at some point, people, I try, I try to be philosophical, but you have to understand, like, if I sell you a car, right, it's your car. Yeah. Like, let's, let's say I have a car that I love and, you know, I called it Alice because I, I loved it so much. I gave her a name and, you know, I, 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 I kept it in perfect condition and was like really protective of this car once i sell it to you i don't get to say okay but you can only drive it you know don't drive it above 50 miles an hour you can't paint it a different color like if you want to go drive it off a cliff you can it's your car you now own it and that's what every time you have to kind of make that you have to be at peace with yourself that when you sell a piece of material to hollywood their part of the bargain is well we're going to spend 100 million dollars making this 
but my part of the bargain is yeah and because of that you now kind of own it and i'll work with you to make the best version possible but you can fire me if you want you can bring on another writer you can completely turn it into something unrecognizable to what i wrote it's very very hard to retain creative control of something after you've sold it to a studio and so that's you know and the best way that you can protect yourself is like at the contract phase before anything is signed you can it's, it's very important to me that i protect this this and this and you're trying to get that yeah. codified in the legal language um but you know there are there are certain things that you can't do like I think I think J.K. Rowling is like the only, maybe um, um, E.L. James with the Fifty Shades of Grey books, like the only time ever that they were in such a strong position because the books were so stupendously successful that they were like they had script approval, right? I could, but I would never get that like, unless Gundog yeah, sold like a billion, a billion. If, if it did, let's say Gundog. Let's not rule like it out. Best, let's say, yeah, let's yeah, let's say it became like the best-selling book of like the last ten years, which is ridiculous. Like, for example, say it did. Oh, then and only then would I be in the position to say, well, if you want to make a movie, you've got to play by my rules, and you want to make the movie so much because you know there's such a massive audience for it, you're going to make so much money, you have to do it my way. But in 99% of cases, it doesn't work that way. It's yeah. well, we're gonna, we're, you know, you're going to make the movie, but as soon as you start spending big money on it, you assert ownership of it, and I'm just going to do the best I can to, to you know, prevent you from screwing it up. So does that make you hesitant potentially engage in these conversations down the line? Should they ever emerge? No, because you 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 always want you always want to take the risk. Like I think writers are incurable romantics, and like I've had, I've had my heart broken as a writer so many times, and you know the whole kind of like I've said to my I've said myself at least twice over the course of my career I'm never I'm never doing another studio movie again. Like and I've probably done like a dozen since the last time I said that. Um, because you know, even when you get heartbroken, I'll never fall in love again. But you do, right? You just do. It just you, the, the, the the romantic in you always. You, you you never completely cash out. Like you 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 may have a time when you're in the doldrums or you've kind of lost faith in 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 love or the creative process or whatever it may be. I'm kind of torturing this analogy, but you know, you'll the, what the thing that made you fall in love with it in the first place will always come back. Like I would I would never make a bad deal. I would never make a deal with you know, for example, it was a filmmaker that I didn't like their work or I didn't trust them or it was a studio that I'd had bad experience in the past. But if the right situation comes along, I'm always going to err on the side of yeah, let's give it a try. Let's, awesome. Let's see what happens. Well, who knows what's possible in the future then for 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 Gun Dog specifically? Um, I I hope so. I mean, it's why it's why I've been doing the publicity rounds. It's why I've been beating the drum as much as I can because I do. Th- I you know, happens the fact that it was originally conceived as a, a motion picture screenplay tells you that it's something that might work well as a motion picture because that was my first idea and so now it's out there as a book now it's out there as a podcast it, again the podcast has already been really successful if the book can replicate anything like that success when we're back to work next year after the strike god willing um you know may, maybe there will be some of those conversations but like i said that's not something i wasn't part of the calculation it's not something i expect that would be like a nice bonus no that's um that, i mean i'm fascinated to see where things progress in that space We've, we've danced around and touched on video games at various different stages, of course, in terms of the actual work that you've done on them. And you've cited quite a few examples from Gears, Duke Nukem, there's Prey, Walking Dead. Um, lots of different capacities too. So uh, we've obviously spoken about some where you're far more hands-on in terms of the writing and the, and the actual shaping the entire story of it. And then I think about others where you know, Halo 5, for example, with some story consultancy for spoken with the original, like kind of the original concept and some law there, and obviously I think a lot of people that when people started to raise their thoughts and commentary on on a game like Forspoken, people you know come and uh, come and ask you questions, and I think there's a lack of understanding of what the role sometimes entails, and so how, you know the different capacities that you're actually involved. So what does that look like? And I guess for you, you know, having a defined role in some of these different games, how do you navigate that space and 
and know most, it's most, to, yeah. yeah most 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 of my work these days in video games is more on the consultancy side it's the, the last time i actually like sat down and like wrote you know actually wrote the dialogue and the story on a video game was the walking dead which was more than 10 years ago um because what what i learned from that is that it's writing video games is really really labor-intensive and hard work and it's difficult it's you know because especially if there's agency and story branching and stuff like that yeah. it's it's i think it's the most difficult form of writing um and it's it, it can be a really really long long process and you know i feel again film and television is, is really kind of my first my first love but I, you know i still talk to people all the time about working on one video game or another usually in a consultancy capacity halo was was a consultancy like i didn't write anything in that game but i sat in a room with the 343 people like for you know a few weeks saying hey what if this happened you know what what if master chief did that you know just kind of pitching story ideas um and the same was true with forespoken and again it's it's funny how people kind of um in trying to own you online the kind of online trolls uh really only demonstrate just how they know, little they know about how video games are actually made because again if you paid attention or listened to any of the interviews i've ever given about it you'll know that yeah i i was worked on that in kind of a conceptual way and ran a writer's room which which square enix ended up using none of and, and completely rebooted the whole game i think i've got like original concept credit or something some credit they gave me but i didn't write yeah. a word in that game and to this day like even when gundog comes oh i hope this is hope the, I hope the dialogue is as good as the dialogue in forespoken as if like yeah. the dialogue in forespoken i didn't even know if it is good or bad i haven't played the game but like if the, you've ever problem with the game um i will i usually dismiss it but i will occasionally make the point of saying Dude, I didn't write a word of that. And if you paid attention, you would know. Um, and it's 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 something I've been putting up with my my whole career. After Earth, right, which was a movie that very few people liked and was a big commercial failure. And I my name's right on it. Um, you know, screenplay by because of the way that the Writers Guild wor uh, rules work. But again, that the reality is that barely a word that I wrote is in that film. The story structure and stuff and some of the basic you know kind of un, you know, fundamentals are from my time working with will and and knight but like it, the dialogue was almost completely rewritten and so um I, I still get people all the time that would be like oh you wrote after earth haha as if it's some kind of you know as if they got me in some way but what they what they don't know about me and something that i learned to do very early on in this business is just like own your own your failures the ones that are your fault the ones that aren't your fault the ones that you're associated with even though you know you it, you know you didn't feel like you really deserve any of the, the credit or the blame for its success or failure. Like your name's on it, whether you like it or not. Um, and I'm at peace with that. Like I, I have a very, very good relationship with failure because I've seen a lot of it. I'm an expert on failure because you've seen, we talk about Star Wars, we talk about Eli and Walking Dead and the things that I've done that are successful. I guarantee you, I, 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 for every one of those things, there's 20 failures, if not more. Yeah. The ratio, I, I often describe it as like an iceberg, right? The, part of the iceberg that breaks the surface of the water and is visible above the surface that's the success that you see right that's the stuff that kind of is visible um but what you don't see is all the failure and rejection which is like the nine tenths of the iceberg that's kind of lurking beneath, yeah. beneath the surface of the water and only i and only i see that um and, and people say oh you've been so successful i mean i i guess yes in terms of the number of successes things that have actually kind of had success but as a numbers game as a ratio it doesn't feel like oh you're, you're maybe one out of 20 things that you develop will have success like that's actually amazingly a pretty good ratio i've worked in the film business for more than 20 years i've had three films made which doesn't sound like a lot but like that's by any metric i'm considered more successful than most so i i think a lot about the failure and rejection and i've learned to become very 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 philosophical about it over the years um i strongly believe that failure isn't the opposite of success but it's a part of it and you that failure can you know was it yoda that said in the last jedi one of the wisest things he ever said failure is the greatest teacher 
And but only if you're willing to listen to it and learn, right? If you take from each failure what you can learn and apply it to the next thing, that's how you get better. But you know, living in fear of failure and like, oh, let's not do this because it might fail, it, that that to me is death. And you have to learn to to kind of confront that and you know and say, bring it on. Like if it fails, it fails. But at least you know we tried something. Um, and that's why I have a lot of credit for um, uh, people that yeah, even even like glorious failures, even I, even things that that came out badly or weren't as intended. I still see when, as long as I can see the intention behind it, like I still have a lot of admiration for people that try things even when they don't work. Yeah. And so when, I mean, you've obviously mentioned some examples there of people kind of throwing things that haven't necessarily worked at you say like an after earth, for example, at you when you're trying to promote or talk about something like Gundog, which is working, is fantastic. Yeah. And people are loving. Does that get hard at times when, when people are trying to link these things in way? And again, they don't have the education or the, the the understanding of the totally different nature of your role and what does and doesn't happen but no, they associate really. them I mean, anyway no not, not not really first of all i should point out that I, I i've probably overstated it i'm extraordinarily lucky that for someone who's done work as visible as i have um you know the star wars movie was well liked right people like rogue one thank god because if i'd had my if, if, if it'd been oh that's the bad star wars film or whatever then yeah you, i don't want to be people shy like away from that around. yeah like 10 years from now, I'm at Comic-Con. Oh, you wrote that Star Wars movie I hated. Um, no, nobody wants that. But like, it's, I, I, get very, I actually get very little of it. Like, I'm very Good. online. It's very easy to kind of hurl brickbats at me if you want. But very few people do. I don't know why, but I've got very few haters. Maybe because I've blocked them all in the past. Like, there's very few of them left that can still get through to me. Um, but no, I, I'm very, very lucky in that, in that way. I, I see some of the hate and vitriol that other people get online. And I'm just like, oh my God, how do you deal with it? Because it's so much more than I, than I see. Um, but also, again, when I do get it, like it's just, it just, it just, it, it, it's like I'm, I'm way past the era of like laying awake at three o'clock in the morning, going, oh, you know, sex have a four seven six five nine on Twitter, you know, said something mean about me. Like, what? Why do I fucking care? What? You're an adult. You know, you've got responsibilities. You've got children. You've got work. Yeah. Got I, I, why, why do I care what some fucking rando who doesn't know how the business works thinks of, uh, of my work? And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've developed a healthy relationship with that kind of criticism as well another piece of advice that someone gave me once is like if you wouldn't if you if you wouldn't ask if you wouldn't if you wouldn't ask a certain person for advice why would you listen to their criticism and you know again just random people um who again it's so a lot of it's not even based in it, it's there's no real foundation for it it's just like, oh i'm going to take i'm going I'm to take a shot at this person because i can and again yeah. i see much less of it than than many people that are, are are at least as visible as me so i consider myself lucky but again i've been doing it long enough now that yeah it really just doesn't bother me anymore like just block and move on no that's that's great to hear and uh we've touched on a few times over the course of the show so far the strike at the moment now we are recording yeah. this in a vacuum and who knows what is to come in the future but uh in your eyes how are things shaping up what are you seeing what are you feeling um, well, how long could this thing potentially go for in your eyes? Unless you've got an extraordinarily long lead time between uh, recording and 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 broadcast, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty short. Sure strike's still going to be on by the time people are uh, are hearing this. You know, the, the optimists uh, at the start of the strike were saying, "Well, maybe it'll, it'll be over by Labor Day. It'll be over over by September." Um, well, here, we, here are. we are, and we're still going. And now people are saying, "Well, maybe January." You have to remember as well, like. That Hollywood kind of like slows down to a halt around November anyway. Everyone starts to go off for their holidays, so there's not a lot of window left in this year anyway. I, I've already priced it in. I personally don't think I, I and the other writers and actors will be back at work until after the holidays until next year, uh, which sucks. But um, I think it's really important, as as is happening, that writers and actors continue to hold the line because the current situation is and has been for a long time untenable. 
Um, you know, it's I don't see why writers and actors should um, struggle to figure out how they're going to pay their health insurance minimums this year while the masses of the universe are figuring out like how much, you know, how many more yachts they want to buy and sail around yeah. the world. In. It's, you know, it's, it's a product of, you know, it's capitalism. It all sucks. I'm, I believe strongly in the power of unions as like the only bulwark against, um, you know, the, 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 the crazed billionaire capitalists that run the planet. Um, and I, I'm very, very glad to see that the public is almost entirely on the side of the writers. I think they can, they, they can see the bullshit, um, um, you know, when, when it's presented. So then they, it just it annoys me immensely that it's dragged out as long as it has. It can only end one way, right? They, they, as Charlie Kaufman said recently, um, talking about the, you know, the billionaires that run these studios, they can create nothing of value without us. And I think they kind of hate acknowledging that, that these kind of like spotty, um, you know, socially awkward nerds are the people that they rely on to like make the content that makes them billions of dollars. So why they, this is why they would love to be able to replace us all with AI and machines, right? That's that's yes. their dream, right? The robots will do what they're told. We don't have to pay them. Why, you know, why why would we want these annoying human beings involved in the creative process? Um, well, for you know, maybe one day AI will get to a point where it can replace us, but it ain't happening anytime soon. It's funny you see people post stuff on on social media. Wow, can you believe that AI made this? Yeah, because it looks like shit. It's easy to believe. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it that guy's out. got eight fingers. What the fuck? Um, it's it's not good stuff. And so they're going to continue to need us for a while longer. Um, I think they resent that a little bit. I think at this point there are certain uh, actors that are, and I don't mean like you know, SAG actors, but like certain people that are involved in this on the other side of the fence who are now just dragging this out out of spite. Yeah. Um, but sooner or later, the shareholders are going to be like, enough is enough. You know, they've already lost more money. They've already lost way more money than, than it would have cost to settle this. Even the first offer, the guild, the guild like, we want this, it's going to cost this much. So, you know, we can't afford that. They've lost more than that already, just dragging this out. So clearly and you can't afford already, it. They're already at a point where there's going to be no new television on screens this um, this fall. And there's going to come a point very soon where there's going to be no movies in theaters next summer because nothing's getting made, right? Right now, Hollywood is not making it. It's, it's not producing its core product. It's not making anything because everything's yeah. at a standstill. And that um, some, some, of the, some of the parties are better insulated against that than others right netflix have got a massive library of content and a backlog and people are happy to watch old shows on netflix for a while longer but for people that are waiting for the next series of star wars or you know stranger things or whatever you're going to keep waiting because i've never seen such uh solidarity and such strength in numbers in the writers it's every time the studios try something to kind of break our resolve we just we just you know just get stronger um and so this only ends one way it's really just a question of like how much pointless pain and suffering other studios going to inflict on themselves and others uh, before they come to the inevitable conclusion that they can make nothing of value without us. And obviously we're starting to see in our video games, not nearly as unionized um, as what we, as what we see elsewhere, but we are starting to see the conversation start to bubble up in games too, with, with several studios and and publishers that, you know, kind of being wrapped up in this and a growing conversation um, anyway about unionization within video games. So I guess, how do you see the scenario playing out for those studios and publishers that are currently wrapped up, uh, increasingly wrapped up in this? I really, I really hope it happens. And I was very glad to see SAG extend um, uh, potentially the strike to, you know, video game actors are going to, are going to go out as well. Yeah. Um, for writers, and video game employees in general. I, 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 again, I come from the UK in the 80s. I remember Margaret Thatcher and the minor strike and the whole thing. So I'm very, very pro-union. I'm, I, I strongly believe in organized labor. Uh, it's the only way to stand up. You know, it's the only, uh, apes together strong, right? It's the only way to stand up against 
uh, the billionaires and you know who will happily exploit us to to death if we don't stand up as 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 one kind of cohesive unit. Um, and I and I sincerely hope that we do see across the board unionization uh, in the in the video game industry. The people that make video games are just as creative and work just as hard, if not harder, than the people who work in Hollywood. So why they wouldn't have the same labor protections, um, I don't know. It's it's certainly interesting, and obviously considering when it comes to film and television so much of it's heavily not all of it but so much of it is heavily concentrated in one particular part of the world versus versus video games which can really just pop up anywhere and the scale is so much different um in a lot of, in a lot of different ways and so there's i'm sure there's like a logistical component to the growth of the 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 union within within the video game scene but hopefully um linking i guess with everything we've discussed hopefully that growth is there and hopefully those in the video game landscape regardless of whatever your discipline might be get that Support yeah, I mean, the, 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 the hardest part of, of, of a union, I think, is, is starting one, right? And, and getting organized because companies will do whatever they can to, to you're seeing it right now with Starbucks and other companies, yeah, are doing everything they can to like prevent the formation of a union. And why, guess why they're doing that? Because they know that unions have power and they, yeah. and they don't want the power balance to change. But, you know, you see it pop up. Like, you know, remember, I think like some Activision QA people unionized and you, you, see, it, you see it pop up here and there. And eventually you get to like a tipping point where, you know, the, the, the snowball starts to gather enough snow that um, it becomes this it becomes an avalanche it. and then there's no there's no there's no stopping it. So I think we are going to get to that tipping point. I think that, you know, the again, the, the people that run the big game studios are going to do everything they can to prevent that from happening again, because they know that that union labor is really the only thing that that um, you can act as kind of a countervailing force against, you know, the, the, the things that they want to do. Yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating scene. Hopefully, firstly, in terms of the scene that you're involved with, hopefully that all, that all resolves itself nice and soon. I just want to get back to work. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, I'm so happy to have a book coming out and to be able to noodle around with other projects, but like I've got TV projects, I've got film You've projects got that are all like full steam ahead and then suddenly, bam, no, they're all like parked. They're all kind of frozen in carbonite until this, and, and this is, it's already dragged on longer than, Every writer that I talk to is like, man, I'm so over it. But then they also say, like, but you know, as long going. as it takes, we're gonna, we're gonna. You know, we, I, I think they would rather, you know, they would rather be over it for another six months than go back to work with a shitty deal because you know that lasts forever. Yeah, it's perfect logic. It's it's hard, but uh, it'll it'll pay off at the end of the day. So before we yeah. start to wrap things up, uh, I'm just gonna quickly throw to myself to shout out the show's sponsors uh, and shout out to you. And so it's at this point in the show that I want to make sure that I shout out all of the amazing patrons at the show shout out tier on patreon.com slash dev diary podcast. Those people are supporting at the top tier in the show, gets them this shout out, and I'm eternally thankful because you are helping fuel the fire that is dev diary now and into the future. And so with this newest episode, I want to shout out Scott Makes Games and my mum, Julie James, thank you very much for supporting this show, and let's get back to it. All right, let's start to wrap things up. Gary, it's been fantastic to have you on the show so far, and it's it's been fascinating to hear about this journey that you've been on up to this point. Has there been anyone uh, that you've worked with or looked at from afar that has really inspired you in the way you go about your work, and obviously covering so many different disciplines? There's so many different kinds of people and skill sets that are involved. Is there anyone that really sticks out as someone who's been a hugely inspirational figure for you? Oh man, that's a really hard question to answer because I, 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 it's like, how long have you got? There's probably there's probably a really long list. And whoever, sure whoever I say, <laughs> whoever I say, the minute the interview is over, I'm going to be, like, oh, I should have said this other person. Um, but like, in, you know, in 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 terms of 
like just the work you know i again i grew up on the on the films of, of spielberg and lucas and i'm a huge fan of the coen brothers and um like i i, I really I, I almost wish you'd like give me this like an hour ago so i could like come up with a list i would have had a much better list for Sorry. you but I, i've been lucky enough to to work with you know a bunch of people uh, like john Knoll at ilm and doug chang at lucas firm some of the some of the smartest people i've i always like i always try to engineer situations where I'm the least smart person. In the room. I never want to be the smartest person in the room because then we're in trouble. Like I, I can't learn anything from people who aren't as smart as me. I always yeah. want to. I always be around people who are smarter than me, and I'll and I'll learn what I can just you know from being around them. Yeah, that's um, certainly you know a really, really effective process. And um, yeah, I, I like to think that I'm never the smartest person in the room. I don't think I am by any stretch. Um, but it, it it provides so much opportunity to learn and. Um, I'm sure that's hugely important to yourself. Yeah, I as think well. the, the 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 best creatives never stop learning. I gave a talk once at Pixar University, and Pixar University is basically a program within Pixar where they ask other filmmakers and people that they admire or whatever have done something that they found interesting to come in and and talk to them. And I I asked them, I was like, "You're Pixar, like, what is there left for you to learn? Like, you guys are the best at what you do." But their attitude is like, oh, no, there's always something more to learn. And that's why they are the best at what they do, because they never feel like, oh, we've cracked it. Like, we've cracked the code. There's nothing more for us to learn. They always think there's something else. They can always be better. They're always like, no matter how much success they've had, they always keep pushing themselves. And that's what makes them the best. Yeah, you're never at the top of the mountain. There's always a climb ahead. And that's that's fantastic. Um, have there been any particularly valuable lessons or experiences you've had along the way that still drive you and inform what you do today? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I touched on it earlier, but like, don't be afraid of failure. Um, you're going to fail. So, you know, get, get hip to that now. Um, and, and remember, remember to be philosophical about every failure that you have and extract from it what you can learn. Like the only time that failure is a bad thing is if you don't learn anything from it, but you, all of all, all you can go back and look at the history of, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Michael Jordan, you know, failed many, 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 many times before they went on to become, you know, successful as they, as they obviously were. Um, and you know, like, I don't know, Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter, Potter book was like turned down by like what 20 different publishers. So like nobody, you know, William Goldman, the great screenwriter, the, the one quote that endures like the most famous quote in, in screenwriting, nobody knows anything. Right. And, and, and you don't like things are baffling and confounding all the time. Like look at Barbie, right? How many people, oh, what I'm really making a movie out of Barbie. Well, guess what? She, they, they made a brilliant movie out of Barbie because you can always make something cool um, if you've if you've got the right talent and the right attitude and the, you know the Lego they made a movie out of Lego yeah and that was brilliant too because you can you you can do brilliant things when you um, when you let brilliant people do their best work so I no, nobody knows anything like Hollywood is constantly learning the wrong lessons from success um, I wish they would learn the right lessons and again it, it, you le- you learn everything you can I think failure has a lot more to teach you than success does yes. um, th- and so, you know, I'm happy for the successes that I've had, but I am weirdly also happy for the failures because I wouldn't have had the successes without them. Yeah, they've informed everything else that's come afterwards. And so it's yeah. just as important, if not more so. I get it. Yeah, maybe a little bit less failure. You would have been okay, but like, I'll, 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 ta- I'll take, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Um, well, I mean, yeah, when you've had the successes that you've had, um, you, you're perhaps more willing to accept some of the failures along the way as well. And obviously, as we've touched on, great opportunity to learn from. Some lighter yeah. ones as we wrap things up. If you could be credited for anything in any capacity, we'll focus on games, but we might open this up to something you know, something broader as well. If you could have worked on anything in any capacity, what what would you have loved to have worked on? I mean, I'm obviously in the weird situation of like in, in, in a million other universes. I would say Star Wars, but I I'm happy, I, I live in this one where I actually do have that credit. 
I remember when I when I sat and watched the movie for the first time, I sat next to Chris Weitz, who's one of the other writers on the movie and at the premiere. And when the when the credits came up at the end with the George, with the, um, uh, the John Williams music playing and everything, and uh, the, our names came up, Chris said, we're in the blue letters, you know, the blue letters that come up yeah. at the end of a Star Wars movie. I remember thinking, oh, man, that's the coolest thing. I'm in the blue letters. Um, and I could work for 50, 50 more years in, in this business. I'll probably never have anything that I would put in front of Rogue One, right? Because what's bigger than Star Wars? Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I've been really lucky. Again, I got to work with DC superheroes and stuff like that. Um, there are definitely like little weird things. Like, I like, you know, okay, so I'm, talk I'm talking to an Australian. Not, I mean, not, not that it matters anymore, but you'll particularly appreciate this. Like, I fucking love Bluey. And oh, like, the if they would let me write, can you imagine if they would let me write? And I actually know Joe Brum a little bit, who created Bluey, and Daily Peterson, who works at uh, Daily Peterson, who works at Ludo, yeah, Ludo um, yeah. is, is is a friend. And I don't know, maybe one of these days, if I get friendly enough with them, I say, like, would you ever let me write an episode of Bluey? Because I'm a dad, I have kids. You know, I'm I'm one of those dads that kind of loves loves Bandit, but also hates him because he sets like impossible standards for dads everywhere. It's like, thank you, so no, no one, no one. I mean, I I think it's a very common thing at this point. Like nobody. Like Bandit is like no dad can play with their kids as much as Bandit does, right? And and it's but there's so much in there, just little moments like you know, he's he's looking at his phone, right? When the kids are brushing their teeth or whatever, just all the all those and like have you ever noticed that when they drive the the, the car looks like shit, right? Because the kids have trashed it in the back. Yeah. There's like trash everywhere. Like you can tell that that show is written by people who my are parents. actually parents. And it is this kind of you know, there's so one of the reasons why I think it's gone on to be so universally successful is not just that kids love it um but parents love it too because they parents see themselves it's so show. relatable it is unbelievably yeah, so, relatable. i've said before it's not just the best kids show on television it's the best show on television yeah it's it's What's absolutely it? right it, up there i'm curious to ask you like, as an australian is it something that as the australians like, what, what does it look like from australia to see bluey like become like probably the most successful australian export like in decades right do you, do you guys feel like like particularly proud of it Oh yeah, I think the the sentiment that we see around the globe um, is something that obviously we've been feeling for a, for a little bit longer. It took a little while before it finally finally caught fire overseas as well. But um, I think Australians overall are just so proud to see what the show is doing abroad. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know how much of it gets back to you, but like as someone who lives in America, I can assure you it is massive. You go like to like every store is like the first thing you see you walking into is like bluey books and and oh that's and, awesome t-shirts and, and oh my god it's like, it's everywhere and i think it's like one of the most streamed shows on all of disney plus yeah like, i see i see that massive data. i see that data and i see the social media stuff but i did not realize that so much of the um merchandise component of it is also i mean i guess it's not surprising it's, this day and age but it's a ma it's 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 so ingrained in the culture now and like people write these really long think pieces about how bluey is so relatable and all the stuff that we were just talking about like it, it is it is like that's the dream right is to create some so like joe brum to me is my hero right because he created something that has like penetrated into the popular consciousness and the popular culture in such a profound way right like i think it's actually helped like bring children and parents together because they look at that model of like it's you know it's it's not sugar-coated it is like sometimes yeah parenting is really hard it's real um but though but you know those th that family love each other so much right and and the, it's just the beauty of like kids like it understands like imaginative play and the idea and, and the way that like kids can like take you know a, 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 like like the the boxes from like an ikea flat pack you know set of furniture and create something amazing and and, and and make like an entire like civilization's down you know rise and fall out of it um and it's just it's just it's just magical there's one episode called hammer barn where they go to oh, the best. like the you know, the you know, the big hardware store and it's Which like is... it's this there's so much truth in it it's the, the, again parents just constantly going oh yeah 
Like my, my wife and I, when we watch it like 10 times an episode, we'll look at it and just go, yeah, we've done that. Which for what it's worth is a complete knockoff of a big local retail hardware chain over here called Bunnings. The, it's got the big hammer logo exactly oh, the same. Oh yeah, I mean, we, a, I mean we, we, have, we, have, we have the Home Depot here. Yeah. It's like, you know, like 500 aisles. It's like, it's like a miniature city that you can get lost in. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Just little, just little things like, you know, oh, kids, when you go to bed, I'm sick of you guys. The kids go to bed and then the mother immediately starts looking at pictures of her kids on her phone. Like we, everyone yeah. does that um and it's just it's just those little moments that come from you know it's like all great art i think comes from like you know our own truths that we live in it's why like i know you have you know instantly right that bluey was written by parents right yeah. people have raised kids because you can't fake that stuff you can't it's make, all so oh, i guess I, I think like it would it, i guess it would kind of be like this right no you don't know what being a parent is like until you until you have kids and and so much of that is is channeled into bluey in a way that we see ourselves both children and parents see ourselves in that show, um, and I, I, I just think it's wonderful. Um, and, and and Daly is this really interesting guy, right? The guy that works at Luda, who I know yeah. a little bit, not only works on Bluey, but is like was like weirdly like Thor's roommate in that Marvel short that they did, where like Thor was just living with a random oh, dude in Australia it? somewhere. Well, didn't yeah. realize that. And and then came up with the idea for this movie that we just saw um, my wife and I recently called Talk to Me, this great Australian horror movie that was like this little indie film that that broke out and became a big viral hit um there's, there's there's so much if it, it's far away but if i ever get to australia i've got to get a tour of ludo and those guys were really nice to me and i was kind of uh, uh singing the praises of bluey before it blew up over here and they sent me like a little care package of you know storybooks and pajamas for the kids and stuff like that and now bluey's huge i i i, I knew I, I was on i was into bluey before it was cool to be into bluey but yeah it's it's certainly an interesting one what's going on with that studio too. Um, I believe I'm, I'm hearing rumblings that they're they're being Queensland based north north half of Australia, but they might be coming down to my neck of the woods down here in Melbourne recently because it's kind of oh, the, interesting. the the arts hub really of Australia. So I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of interested to see what happens there, but I'm also really interested to see. I mean, and some of these things you'll have a, an appreciation for as well, you know, with your UK background. But uh, I, you know, there's there's episodes about cricket, for example. I think oh. How, yeah. how are certain audiences going yeah, to... Yeah, I, I had to explain to somebody what LBW was because Bandit was complaining, <laughs> how is that LBW? And I was like, oh, somebody what? looked at me and I was like, okay, so if the if the ball hits your pad and in a way that... It's going to go on to hit these wooden wicket, sticks behind and, you. Yeah, there's, yeah and, I, and I love the fact that it's like unapologetically Australian. Like it doesn't... Um, you know, they didn't dub it into like American accents yeah. or anything. All the, all the Australian cultural references are there my kid learned you know what a dobber don't be a dobber she learned what a dobber is and, and this kind of stuff we we call you know we we call things dollar bucks around here like oh, here's Good. five dollar bucks get yourself an ice cream it's just so much of it um and it's funny because a lot, a lot of australian slang you know is british slang as well right because we have that shared history so um it's yeah i've, I've translated bluey a few times for for americans who don't know what certain terms mean um, and long may I continue because yeah, as we've discussed on it's an amazing show um, conversely if you could go back and replay any game strike it from your memory and get to experience it all over again well is there a game that you'd love to have that experience with that's one I didn't have to think about at all Journey oh, yeah. it's one of my yeah. all time favourite games and the, the somebody said to me uh, when I first got it, it said it's only it's a two hour game um, put your phone on do not disturb used to, used, to, used to say like take the phone off the hook you don't do it anymore now. Yeah, put no, your phone on do not disturb like what's the hook throw it away um, you know, close the close the curtains like just put headphones on and just like play that game all in one playthrough and I did that I set the time as this before I had kids so I was able to do it set the time aside close the curtains turn the volume up and just played that game from beginning to end in one like two hour session and I was so like profoundly moved by the end of that game um, that like it was, it, that that to me more than more probably more than any other game 
to me demonstrated like the power and the potential of storytelling in video games and of course it does it with almost nothing right there's no dialogue it's very minimalist everything's everything's suggested um and that that to me is one of the most profound experiences i've ever had playing video games and i would also say braid is up there and most recently i don't know if you played a game called the artful escape but that game blew me away as well those those are some those are some of my 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 favorite games of like the of the last of this century i would say journey braid uh well, braid probably was was probably before i don't know was it i don't remember yeah Bra- yeah Bra- no, Bra- it was after because yeah. it, it was xbox 360 title um and um an artful escape like i love weird little indie games that do interesting things with storytelling look you're citing a few aussie products there from bluey to the artful escape so i mean i know you've done the, oh, the uk right. to the us but if you want to come down here and just base yourself out of here you're more than welcome you're clearly embracing what we've what we well can i out. mean the, i mean the, the, the way things are going here i might be looking for you know make an artful escape of my own well we'll see well, uh, whenever you want, feel free to come on down. Um, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and to to learn about this this journey you've been on so far and for you to be able to share, share some wonderful insights for those listening. Thank you so much for coming on board. If people want to check out Gundog, see anything else that you're up to, reach out on social media, where should people go? Um, so first of all, with Gundog, in terms of like a physical copy, I'm not sure what the release plans are for Australia right now. It's it, it, There's books on the shelves in the US and I know we're rolling it out into other countries but it might be a while before you could go into a, an Australian book you could obviously find one from a, Amazon a different online store but but you know the Kindle and iBooks versions the digital versions are available now you can go to inkshares.com slash books slash gundog and I believe they'll ship a copy pretty much anywhere in the world so if you really want a physical copy you can get one um, or you can go onto you know Amazon iBooks get a, get the ebook there or if you prefer to listen to audiobooks like I said that whole the audio version has been available for free uh, for a while, just type Gundog into Audible, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any podcast service will have it. We broke it up into nine hour long episodes, but it's the whole book uh, and that's available as well. Social media, I'm just Gary Witter, just my name on uh, Twitter and um, uh, uh, YouTube and TikTok. And then I'm G Witter on Instagram and threads. And that's pretty much uh, everything, I think. Oh, and, and if- Gary Witter on Twitch. I do stream on Twitch still occasionally. Yeah, and we actually—I meant to acknowledge this properly, but obviously some of the amazing work that you did, especially through the COVID era with uh, uh, animal talking and talk guys, and yeah, all those sorts that, of was, so that was that was that was incredible. It's amazing Must to me for like a stupid a stupid project that was never meant to amount to anything. Like how much that still comes. Oh, I loved animal talking during the pandemic. Um, yeah, we we basically made a live celebrity late night talk show inside Animal Crossing and broadcast it, and it blew up with like real celebrity guests. And if you're interested in seeing it, all of the full episodes and the highlight reels are all on my YouTube channel, Gary Witter. Yeah, it was it was amazing viewing. It was, uh, so thank you very much for what you did during the pandemic there, in particular with that too. The, um, the, that, that, that was the greatest gift for me is like people saying, "Oh, you put a smile on my face during the pandemic," which was, I mean, we, we all remember how much it sucked, right? It was it was it was a dark. It was a dark time, and um, it was it was nice to have a creative outlet during that time. And of course, people can check you out on Kind of Funny through the Kind of Funny X cast as well, as we've touched on a few times too. Yeah, so. I, co- I co-host the uh, the Xbox uh, podcast for Kind of Funny, called Kind of Funny X cast, and you can find that on YouTube and on podcast services uh, all over. We have a lot of fun with that with Mike and Paris. Yeah, so lots of amazing opportunities to see what Gary's doing and to reach out. So please make sure to do so. Um, thank you, Gary, so much for coming on the show and being an incredible guest. It's been fantastic. You've—I uh, won't lie—you've been kind of a bucket list guest um, over the years of running the show, and I'm thrilled to have been able to have this opportunity to chat. So, thank you so much. Happy to, to fill your bucket, and uh, thanks a lot for having me. It was fun. And listeners, as always, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to in an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Gary's story. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.